Listening to your voices, I was able to enter into and be deeply grieved by the stories of the suffering, hardship, discrimination, and various forms of abuse that some of you experienced, particularly in the residential schools. In all these things that wounded you, in the abuses you suffered, and in the lack of respect shown for your identity, your culture, and even your spiritual values, all these things are contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the deplorable conduct of these members of the Catholic Church, I ask for God's forgiveness, and I want to say to you with all my heart, I am very sorry. And I join my brothers, the Canadian bishops, in asking your pardon. Welcome to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. I'm Aaron O'Toole, the Member of Parliament for Durham. And today I'm very excited about a special guest that we're having to talk about reconciliation, to talk about the relationship with Indigenous peoples and some of the amazing milestones we're seeing uh, after generations of hard-fought advocacy for recognition of the trauma of residential schools and recognition of the need for reconciliation as a country. Today, our special guest on the Blue Skies podcast is the Honorable Murray Sinclair, former Senator, judge, lawyer, chancellor right now of the second best university in Kingston, Queen's University. I say that as an RMC grad Senator, I apologize. Chairman of the Indian Residential Schools Truth and Reconciliation Commission something that took place that was really transformative for our country between 2009-2015. TRC, as it's now called, that most Canadians know what that acronym means. That's how much it has gotten into the DNA of our country. It's 94 calls to action serving as a roadmap. Murray Sinclair hails from Manitoba. He was born and raised on the St. Peter's Indian Reserve near Selkirk, Manitoba valedictorian of his high school class, a proud air cadet, one of my favorite attributes of an illustrious career, and someone that has taken his advocacy across this country in parliament in his years as a member of the Senate, and now in his consulting and mentoring role for young lawyers, for young graduates at Queen's, and still helping our country through on the path to reconciliation. Welcome, Murray Sinclair. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation to be on this uh, podcast, Aaron. And I know that uh, we're probably reaching millions and millions of people in the opportunity to talk with each other. Well, uh, I'm going to steal that quote from you, Senator, and say Senator Sinclair says that millions of Canadians listen to Aaron O'Toole's podcast. Uh, I don't think that's correct, but if you say it, it'll have a lot more weight than me saying it. Um, well, I think they should, actually. Yeah, I have a lot of respect for your uh, career and for your uh, 
role and um, for the views that you hold. So uh, I'm with you. Well, listen, and I've always enjoyed our, our discussions and uh, always appreciated and admired your approach to leadership. And, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But we witness history um, just last week. This will be broadcast in another week. So to Canadians, a few weeks ago, they saw uh, Inuit, Métis, First Nation, Indigenous Canadians, at the Vatican in Rome for a papal apology that was mentioned as one of your recommendations out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. In your statement, you said, quote, this will allow Catholics to return to the strength of their faith, the hope, faith, justice, and truth that survivors have sought for so long are indeed Catholic values. I thought that was a wonderful way to express it for an Indigenous person raised in a community named St. Peter's. What did the papal apology mean for you personally? Uh, well, um, personally, of course, uh, my connection to the Catholic Church is through my grandmother, who was in a Catholic residential school, and she uh, came out of that school as a fervent Catholic. She really believed strongly in the teachings of the Church. Uh, she um, and she took me with her to church whenever she uh, was uh, going. And often that meant two or three times a week. And uh, we lived out of town uh, on the reserve and, and it was a three mile walk to get to the church. And so we would make that walk uh, whenever there was a service that she wanted to attend or something that she wanted to do. And, uh, and so uh, I, I was, um, there in attendance at all of those services uh, and I, I can tell you that her sincere wish as I was growing up because I was raised by my grandmother and she was my legal guardian and my mother had passed away when I was a year old and uh, and so we and, and my my siblings and I were transferred to her care uh, but uh, her sincere wish, and in fact, uh, her commitment to the church when she was allowed to leave the school in order to get married was that one member of her family would be committed to the priesthood or to the uh, convent. And uh, she could never convince any of her children to join the church in that way. Um, but uh, she saw in me a, a very strong streak of spirituality uh, and and so I would go to her, go with her to church um, because I, I really connected with the, uh, the teachings of the church in many ways. I followed, I picked up and followed the ways of our indigenous teachings and culture and, uh, and uh, lodge leaders. I'm now a leader in a spiritual group within the uh, Anishinaabe people. Um, and I carry a drum and I have a pipe and I, I use those quite significantly. But um, I can remember as a, uh, in the early years of my experience uh, working with elders and, and listening to elders talk, that <clears throat> there was a group discussion about the conflict between Christianity and the indigenous way of seeing things, spirituality, indigenous and spirituality. And I remember one elder who became a very good mentor of mine, 
saying to the others, if Jesus were here today, he would be sitting in this lodge with us because nothing that he speaks about is different from what we speak about. And I thought, that's really interesting. And what it really spoke to me about was that there is a way for us to reconcile our differences um, and our approach. The conflict between Christianity and indigenous ways of believing and saying things was not a conflict that was created by indigenous people. It was a conflict that was created by the early approaches to Christianization that the churches brought, not just the Catholics, of course, but all of them brought. And the, the way in which Christianity was rolled up into this sense of missionary work and, and uh, zeal. And of course, uh, also in keeping with some of the beliefs about uh, inferiority and uh, whether they were in fact human beings, indigenous people were human beings and, and all of that. Uh, some of which I talked about in the aftermath of the apology. But one of the things that, I, that I've um, encouraged young people to think about is that in our process of reconciliation on our side, we don't have to uh, try to work to eliminate the, the churches and their teachings. We just need to, to get them to understand that for the longest time they were wrong about what they said about us, but that we ourselves need to grow in our own sense of our own spirituality. And the uh, apology from the Pope uh, did two major things. One is I think it acknowledged that that was a valid path for survivors and their families, but it also, I think, encouraged Catholics to begin to see that in fact, some of the ways that the church used to speak about indigenous people need to be corrected today. And, and what I said in my statement at the time that the apology from the Pope was given is that my grandmother would have felt shame the longer and longer it took for the church to speak uh, to indigenous people in an apologetic way about what they had done to us over the years. But to if she were alive, to have heard the apology would have made her feel stronger in her faith and would have made her feel that uh, she was closer to God and closer to the church. And, uh, and I'm sure that's true for many survivors because many survivors still embrace the followings of the teachings of the, of the church and their conflict over that and what the churches have done is um, now been able to be put into some form of resolution. So yeah. it's a very important process that we've engaged in. Uh, you know, the process of the papal apology is not complete yet. There's still some elements of it that need to be yeah. uh, undertaken. But at the same time, um, we are. Well, let, well, let me we talk are, about we that. Are, we are on that road. So. Yeah, let me talk about that for, for a moment. And um, I'm sure uh, your grandmother's influence was formative. And if only she could see what you've been able to accomplish through her devotion and faith in you. Uh, your comments about 
the intersection between indigenous spirituality and, and you know, Christian tenets that Jesus would be in the lodge with you reminded me of the Matthew verse where two or three gather, uh, uh, I am there. Um, there the, the, the conflict that, that indigenous peoples with faith must have had uh, was profound. But as you said, the apology, in your view, uh, is a work in progress. Obviously, a lot of people want to see the Pope come to Canada. But speak for a moment about the, the papal bulls or the decrees from, the, the, from Rome uh, on the, the New World exploration, the conquest. And that has to be part of it. I think a lot of people probably are hearing the term papal bull for the first time. Uh, these decrees that really allowed the, the first contact and the, the settling in the new world empowered the colonization process, the servitude, the, in some cases, enslavement. The, the redress being asked for, they really want these these to be withdrawn and apologized for directly as opposed to the actions of, of people that worked in the uh, in Indian residential schools program. Is that what you see as, as, as the next, next natural step that perhaps the Pope can do in Canada? Oh, yes. Um, I think there's a considerable amount of work that needs to be done around that. Um, you know, the, the one thing that we need to understand is that um, to a certain degree, the, the Catholic Church, uh, because of its, uh, uh, the nature of its history and existence, uh, is, is a political institution. And early on in its um, evolution as a church, it needed to establish and wanted to establish itself as uh, an institution that has uh, political influence around the world. And in doing that, of course, um, they uh, identified those nations in, in Europe, uh, European nations that were Catholic in nature and had a heavy Catholic influence, Spain, Portugal being foremost among them, and uh, authorized them in the name of the church to spread the word of the church um, in their exploration, and even authorized them to do it in parts of the world that each was assigned to. So Portugal, for example, the, the, the church divided the world in two uh, areas and said, Portugal, you have this area where you can spread the word. And Spain was given another part of the world to spread its um, belief systems. And uh, when in doing that, they relied upon as well uh, one of the very early uh, papal doctrines that was issued, uh, and that's the doctrine of discovery. The doctrine of discovery was in authorizing those nations, those Catholic nations, to go out and to uh, explore and conquer the world. And the, the word um, conquest was used. And, and conquering the world, they were specifically authorized to ignore the existence of any indigenous people, any non-Christian people that they discovered um, who uh, would not and had not or were uh, unwilling to embrace the tenets of the church. And so they could be effectively wiped out and their, their land holdings and any rights that they had didn't exist in the eyes of the church unless they themselves had already embraced the church's teachings. And of course, there were none of those 
around. Um, and so the doctrine of discovery is probably first and foremost a papal decree that needs to be recognized by the church as being inherently racist in nature because of course the, the nations, the Catholic nations that were being authorized to follow it were, were being authorized to exterminate the people. And uh, Christopher Columbus, uh, history now shows, uh, work to exterminate the indigenous people in Central and, and Middle America that he discovered. And uh, the researchers that we have seen, and, and keep in mind, incidentally, that uh, there'd been very little research that was devoted to this uh, for history courses. Um, it's only recently within my lifetime that this research is now being done. Um, but history shows that he was probably responsible for the uh, murders of anywhere around 20 million indigenous people. Um, a huge genocide. Uh, and and it's the, part of it is documented, in fact, in the writings of Bartolomeu de las Casas, who was a Catholic priest who was assigned to be in the area where Columbus was doing his uh, expansion, his, his conquest. And Bartolomeu de las Casas, in his journals, recorded all that he witnessed, including the way that children were killed and women were killed and men were uh, killed, uh, indigenous men, indigenous women, indigenous children. And, and he reported this all back to the church so that in 1521, uh, there was a papal uh, uh, meeting that was held uh, and they sort of backed the doctrine of discovery idea back a little bit saying that these were in fact human beings. The doctrine of discovery said they're not human beings because they're not civilized and they're not Christian. But it, uh, they walked it back a bit and said they are human beings, but they are human beings of a lesser nature. And so even that doctrine, the papal bull of 1521, needs to be seen in that light. And that also needs to be reconsidered. And there have been a number of uh, statements made by the uh, the papacy over the years that need to be reconsidered and need to be corrected. Now, yeah. that's uh, that's incidentally one of the con one of the um, attacks that have been issued against the, the, the papal apology was that he apologized specifically for the behavior of individuals who acted in the name of the church, but he didn't apologize for what the church itself has done in mm -hmm. issuing those doctrines, in issuing those bulls, in issuing those decrees. And so I think that's another conversation that does need to occur. Yeah, and I do, I haven't heard a date yet, um, but there has been a lot of speculation that the Pope will come to Canada this summer or, or fall, perhaps. And um, recognition of uh, the inherent racism and, and the, the starting point of colonization through the doctrine of discovery, there's a real opportunity for the first pope from the new world, so to speak, uh, from South America to, to recognize this. So let's, let's move um, into something that I think most Canadians know and appreciate your leadership on, which is a derivative of the process of colonization, and that is the Indian residential schools, as they were called. And, and um, congratulations, you became a companion of the Order of Canada 
last year, in large part for some of your leadership related to this, which ended up being a six-year emotionally, spiritually, intellectually, I'm sure, exhaustive enterprise. Um, talk about how you came to to lead that process as the chair of the TRC. Um, you were asked. It came after the the apology from Prime Minister Harper. Um, were you a judge at the time? How did this critical assignment in our history uh, come to you? Well, uh, yeah, I was appointed a judge in 1988. I graduated from law school in uh, 1979 uh, and was appointed a judge in 1988. And uh, one of my first uh, tasks as a judge uh, was to co-chair the Aboriginal Justice Inquiry of Manitoba, which was an inquiry which looked at the relationship between Indigenous people and uh, the justice system. And we spent three years doing that inquiry, writing that report. Uh, and then shortly after that, um, I was asked to uh, preside over another inquiry uh, called the Pediatric Cardiac Surgery Inquiry, which was an inquiry into the deaths of 12 children at the hands of a, a surgeon um, who proved to be not only because of the deaths, but just generally because of, of the uh, the nature of the relationships that he had and uh, work that he was doing, uh, who proved to be not a very good surgeon. And uh, those deaths we, I found in the course of the inquiry um, were largely preventable. And uh, so those were two very emotional experiences, very difficult experiences. You can't really um, spend the three years that I did with the pediatric inquiry, you can't really spend that time um, listening to the testimony of witnesses who uh, talked about what it was like taking children into the operating room and uh, believing as they were taking them into the room that they were not going to survive, even though in the hands of another surgeon they would likely survive. Um, and the frustration they felt at not having anybody listen to them and, and then at the same time to hear from parents who talked about what a beautiful child that they'd had um, uh, the relationship they had with a child a five-year-old child and what that child was like and, uh, and not be affected by it because you know there were lots of babies in my family lots of little children in my family and I would think about them as I was going through that and so it was a very emotionally trying experience for me uh, to listen to that evidence and I, so I needed time to recover from that and while it was while I was recovering from that that I got a phone call from Tom Berger uh, who was co-chairing or who was chairing the uh, search committee for the um, chairmanship of the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And he called and he said, uh, the uh, committee members would like you to consider being the chair of the TRC. And I said, I can't. I'm, I'm still um, dealing with the uh, work that I did with the pediatric inquiry and also with the AJI. Uh, and I said, those are those were difficult cases to do and to listen to the evidence and the impact that they had on families. And uh, I said, I need time to 
to, to deal with it and get over with. And, you know, I was working with elders and working with um, um, spiritual support people uh, just to come to terms with all of that because it's it's not easy. And so he said he understood. And so they went on to, to look for and, and put together another team of commissioners. Um, and that team of commissioners, unfortunately, didn't succeed. It fell apart rather quickly. And so uh, then, uh, then they called me back uh, the following year. And they said, uh, the committee is pretty unanimous in asking uh, that you reconsider chairing this. And by that time, I had followed the work of the TRC, of course, and I had I was well aware of the settlement agreements and uh, and uh, all of the nature of what was going on. And, and I realized the importance of it, of course. And I, uh, I knew that the survivors of residential schools had been looking forward to it the work of the TRC. They've been looking forward to the opportunity to tell their stories. And they were hugely disappointed when the first commission fell apart. And that uh, it actually evoked a lot of anger on the part of survivors. And so I felt this uh, sense of responsibility to them to say yes. And so I said, yes, and uh, I would do it. I said, but I had some conditions and um, the, the parties agreed to the conditions that I had. And remember, this wasn't a government um, commission. This was a commission that was appointed by the court uh, under the settlement agreement itself. So the, the chief, judge, chief judge of Ontario was the one who was um, overseeing the, the terms of the agreement. And so uh, he authorized the uh, creation of the commission or the recreation of the commission, I guess. and. Uh, later on that this summer, uh, we uh, met. I met with the, the two new commissioners before we started our hearings, and I, I, I made a number of uh, comments to them, one of which was, I said, you have to understand that we are about to enter one of the most emotional experiences of our lives. This is going to be very difficult for us. I, I was a child of a survivor. Uh, Chief Wilton Littlechild was a survivor himself, and uh, Commissioner Marie Wilson uh, was the wife of a survivor and the grandmother of uh, grandchildren and the mother of children who were descendants of a survivor. And so, so we had uh, pretty much all, sort of all of the elements of the experience of survivors and their families. Uh, all on that team. And I said, this is going to be difficult for us. So you have a responsibility to do three things. I said, you have to put in place spiritual support. So you have to be sure that you have a spiritual support person available to you uh, from whichever spiritual group that you want to draw from. You have to have a health support person in place. So you have to be sure that your doctors are available to you, your medical team is available to you. And uh, you also have to spend some time with your family and, uh, and get them to understand what this work is all about, because you're going to need their support as you go through this. You cannot, you cannot, and we cannot afford to fail the survivors anymore. And so no. then, then we started our hearings. That, 
That is wonderful leadership you provided, Senator, because I'll tell you, having worked in and around veterans and mental health issues, that if you're not building up your resiliency uh, and your supports, as you said, spiritual health and family before going into that, I don't think enough Canadians understand that there's a caregiver trauma that, uh, that you will develop when you're there facilitating people going through their own trauma and, and it becomes projected onto you. And you, you had already accumulated some from your judicial inquiries ahead of time, and you were at least aware of that. Um, let me dive into how important this was for the survivors for a moment. Um, obviously, the 94 calls to action, your recommendations, and what the, the commission recommended to reconcile this horrific chapter of our, of our past with going forward uh, in the future, that was important. But the hearings and the witnesses themselves, how important was it for the survivors to just tell their story? And was, was there one that stood out to you that kind of symbolized how important it was for someone to to talk about how this uh, deeply impacted their life? Well, um, yeah, the, uh, the, from the outset, I was, uh, I was concerned, not only, of course, for the commissioners, but also for our staff, because I knew our staff were going to be engaging with survivors and working with them in order to listen to their testimony and arrange for them to testify before the uh, commission. Um, so it, in the course of uh, the process that, that we established for ourselves, <laughs> one of the rules that I established was I said, no lawyers, there will be no lawyers in the room. Um, this is going to be a space where the survivors get to talk to us and it's gonna be a human on human experience for them. We don't want them to be sitting there being questioned by lawyers or being um, with lawyers. And said, so if uh, somebody wishes to uh, have a lawyer present while they talk, I said, then we will schedule those into a private session. And, um, and we, we also schedule private sessions for people who didn't want to tell their stories in front of a large audience or in front of other survivors. Uh, and there is often conflicts between survivors because sometimes a survivor um, would have gone on to be an abuser of another survivor. And so we were conscious of that possibility. So we always offered private uh, statement gathering processes. But the important thing was that uh, through that entire process was uh, we wanted to ensure that as staff and as commissioners, we avoided uh, getting to the stage where we just stopped listening, that it became mechanical, that we um, turned ourselves off emotionally and uh, that we weren't uh, emotionally supportive to the survivors because it was important for the survivors to, to think that they were being heard by somebody who cared. And we knew that that was a very important part of the process. Uh, and because of my experience with the uh, AJI, as well as with the um, 
a pediatric inquiry where there were a lot of lawyers present, but uh, during the AJI, not everybody testified with lawyers present. Because of that experience, I understood the, the benefits of people being able to talk uh, frankly in front of other people who had similar experiences so that they then could also uh, feel a sense of validation from having heard what somebody else had said and that their experiences uh, would allow them to, to go on and share um, their emotional reactions to what they were hearing. And so uh, we ensured that uh, after the, uh, the hearings that we uh, held, uh, that we allowed the survivors to gather in a circle on their own to be able to talk just with each other, to be supportive to each other, uh, to share with each other, uh, to hold each other up or lift each other up. And, uh, and then uh, so to our surprise, actually, the survivors started inviting us into those circles and because they said, um, what you're hearing is also uh, something that might harm you. It might be too much for you. So we need you to be healthy throughout this whole thing. So they invited us in and, and we listened to them and, and we shared with them how we were feeling. And it was just about kind of emotional uh, feelings and thoughts. And, and uh, it, it really allowed us to form a bond with each other as commissioners, with our staff who were also invited in, but also with the survivors. And so, um, and those were private sessions that were held outside of the cameras. But in front of the cameras, um, one of the reasons why we uh, felt it important to broadcast was because, of, again, my, with my experience at the um, AJI, was that it was the first time during the AJI that any members of the public actually heard what Indigenous people were experiencing at the hands of the justice system. And I can't tell you how many times as uh, following the AGI that people would say to me, we were astonished by what we heard. We didn't know that those kinds of things were happening. We didn't know that the lawyers were doing that. We didn't know that the judges were saying those things. And, uh, and during the uh, TRC hearings, uh, we, we almost always got the same response from members of the public because we were, uh, webcasting. We couldn't get a broadcaster to carry the hearings, but we were able to, through the use of technology, actually webcast everything. So it was available to the entire world on the internet. And so those webcasts, um, some of them, and they have ways of measuring this that I don't quite understand, but some of them were being watched by over 300,000 individuals and sites around the world. And we had people communicating to us from Africa, from Australia, from Europe, um, and uh, parts of the world that, and, and even in Asia, uh, parts of the world that um, uh, we were quite surprised to hear from, who were telling us that, uh, that this was something that they felt that uh, they really needed to know about Canada. And so the experience, was a global experience for those who were watching. And, uh, and we think that uh, 
that was in and of itself uh, uh, an educational uh, experience for all Canadians. And that's why I think the TRC work uh, had such an impact was that um, throughout the process, there was a constant audience of Canadians who were watching what we were doing. And uh, our room was always filled. We had two to 10,000 people in a room sometimes watching the, the, the people testifying. But on the internet, we'd have an additional 20 to 60,000 people also watching. Mm -hmm. No, and it, it was needed because that public element allowed non-Indigenous people, Canadians that maybe were not aware of what went on at residential schools to hear from the survivors and the fact that you set the entire hearing structure around um, accommodating the survivors to be able to be heard uh, is remarkable. I've told you this story, Murray, that um, I did not learn about the residential schools. I'm 49. Um, yeah, I consider myself fairly well educated, although on Twitter, they probably don't think I'm uh, fairly educated. But I did not learn my generation about the residential school program and the extent of it until I was at law school at Dalhousie, where they had uh, an Indigenous uh, uh, Mi'kmaq program where in the first few weeks we learned about residential schools. The impact of the TRC, my children, when we were talking about the lowering of the flags after the discovery of graves and clam loops, my 10 year old, he was nine at the time, Jack, knew about the program, knew how harmful it was. Um, that's a remarkable change just between, you know, one generation uh, and that is because um, because you allowed those stories to be told. Um, have you stayed in touch with the with the with the other commissioners or with survivors? And have you seen the ripple effects from what you what you did through the TRC uh, right through to this day and to the recent apology? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, the most recent comment that we got during the work of the TRC and afterwards as well is the one that you just uh, yourself uh, uh, stated, which is, I never knew any of this. Why, why was I never taught about this? Why is this not discussed in schools? That's why one of our uh, most significant recommendations is that the way that we educate children in, in Canada needs to include an educational program and a change to the curriculum to include uh, a better history about Indigenous people, not necessarily about residential schools, but about who the Indigenous people are and how they were organized and what their nature government is, so that um, uh, children are, are able to speak to and about each other with more respect and understanding. And uh, instead of focusing so much upon Canada as a nation since Confederation. It should be Canada before and after Confederation as well. Uh, so so that, uh, uh, that element of it was an important part of uh, what we were focusing upon and trying to achieve. But the, the, the constant comment that we got, and I still get it today from many people who thanked me for the work of the TRC because they said, I didn't know any of this. And, and that they also, <laughs> interestingly, tell me 
that uh, even though they, they knew it was going on and you know they weren't really paying attention, they weren't really listening to the hearings, they said, uh, now uh, one, one uh, gentleman that I met uh, recently said, now I have to read something about this. He said, because my grandson came to me the other day and said, Grandpa, did you ever go and see that residential school that's just over 10 miles away from our house? And, and I had to admit to him, I didn't know there was even one there. And so he did a little bit of research, found out that in fact, there was a residential school in the middle of Winnipeg and he didn't know about it. And so he said he, he actually went to the site to take a look and see what it was like and where it was. And, and then he read about it. And, and so uh, there was a lot of, uh, there was a lot of no knowledge and a lot of uh, experience that was shared with us that, that brought the entire country to at least a level of knowledge that, and awareness. But part of it still goes on today. And, uh, and incidentally, I, I want to tell you, uh, and you'd asked me this earlier and I forgot to respond to it. Uh, you asked me if there was a particular individual or story that came out during the hearings that, that I um, will not easily forget. And there are hundreds of them, I want you to know. I think about individual survivors constantly, uh, particularly when, when events occur. And um, you know, when, when the papal apology occurred, I think of a, a survivor who came to us and asked him, he asked us to help him get excommunicated because he didn't want to be a Catholic anymore. And he had tried to ask the local priest how to get excommunicated and he couldn't do it through the church because he hadn't done anything wrong to justify excommunication. And so I said to him, well, why do you want to be excommunicated? And he said, because I don't want to be a Catholic anymore. I want to be a Christian. And so I said, okay, well, I think there's probably a little bit of understanding here that we might need to help you with first. So, um, so there was that, um, and that, those kinds of incidents, but I got to tell you, the one person who probably uh, affected us the most, because he also worked with us uh, during the hearings, he would come to hearings and he would, at our invitation, speak to the survivors, was Teddy Fontaine. Uh, Ted Fontaine um, has since moved on to the next world, uh, but uh, he was uh, he was a huge a voice and a constant presence for all survivors. And we would invite him to the microphone just to share his feelings because he was both um, strong about the wrongness of what had been done to him, but also strong about the need to be able to move forward together. And, uh, and that was an important message for us to, to get across. And he, he really, really fervently believed in in the process of the need for and the process of reconciliation. So, Ted Fontaine, well, I, I will tell you, and I, I can't recall if I told you this or not, on the uh, first day of Truth and Reconciliation, I sent you a note. Uh, I also was at the, the flame here in Ottawa, where, of course, there were a lot of shoes and, and flowers. And there was one gentleman um, who uh, I can't recall his name at the moment, but he participated in the TRC and then would come wherever he could, uh, like thousands of Indigenous 
peoples uh, served in the Canadian Armed Forces and knew me as the Veterans Affairs Minister. And he said that some of the veterans he knows developed operational stress injuries from service in the military, but it also related to childhood trauma, uh, in many cases linked to residential schools. And um, the, the very fact that the TRC allowed him to talk about his childhood and that of his parents helped him heal some of the invisible wounds of service from his time in the Canadian Armed Forces. And so it's a trauma is 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 something that stays with you, but the road to healing is often started through conversations. And um, the the ability to facilitate that is really what your leadership on the TRC gave Canada and gave millions of of our citizens. The the recent budget uh, had $11 billion earmarked specifically for many of the TRC calls, uh, calls to action specifically related to former school sites, missing children, um, identification, allowing families some closure. Uh, can you talk for a moment about how those calls to action are so important because the, the, the unmarked graves was almost a reminder, almost a decade after the TRC report of the fact that we have to move on these calls to action. Um, were those funds in the budget a good step in your view? Well, I think, yeah, I think anything that contributes to um, ongoing discovery and uh, ongoing reparation of the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples and Indigenous peoples and the institutions of our country uh, is, is a very important step. And it's a very good thing for us to do because the reality is that, uh, first of all, as a nation, we have a certain perspective of ourselves and a certain view of ourselves that uh, we, are, we have now discovered has been a wrong view. A, an incorrect view. Uh, we are not the nation of peaceful people who uh, are always uh, beneficent to the world. Uh, we are a nation that has a history of uh, attempting to exterminate a race of people uh, within the, the borders of our country. Uh, and our extermination of them was not through physical means necessarily although thousands of them died in the process, our extermination of them was to exterminate their culture, their language, and their racial, racial identity, which is a, a very significant element of the definition of genocide under the Genocide Convention. Uh, to do that, to eliminate a race through cultural um, uh, elimination and language elimination, and racial identity elimination, is recognized as an act of genocide. And uh, so we pointed that out in the course of, of our report. Um, but what we also said was that we, uh, we, we need to understand that it's not just indigenous people who have been negatively affected by this history and by this treatment. It's also the non-indigenous kids who've been miseducated about who we are as people as well, because in the public schools of this country, when they talk about Indigenous people, and I can tell you because I was a student in the public schools as well, and I graduated at the top of my class, um, but during the course of my education, 
I can tell you that I felt a certain degree of shame about uh, the way they would talk about indigenous people, the, the lack of intelligence that the, the indigenous people were so dependent upon white European explorers and missionaries and discoverers, and that uh, we had no nothing of value to contribute to society, to contribute to the world. And, and uh, I, I wanted to believe that was wrong, but I didn't know uh, how to respond to that. I didn't know where to find out more about that. But in the public schools, that's what they taught. So they taught about the inferiority of Indigenous people in our public schools. And at the same time, they talked about the beauty of white civilization. They talked about the, uh, the fact that we should all strive to be good uh, British Empire loyalist type you know, people. And in fact, I don't know if you had this experience when you were going to public school, but the front of our classroom was dominated by a map of the world with the British Empire in pink, all shown. Cart cartographer's red, that used to be <laughs> called. Yeah, that, I learned that at military college. Yeah. The sun never sets on the empire was the expression, yeah. right? Exactly. And it was a huge map. And every day, we would be reminded that our obligation was to uphold the principles of the British Empire and to, to be thankful of the fact that we were part of that empire. And, and so for the non-Indigenous kids, they were taught the mytho mythological belief that they were superior because they brought that to Indigenous people. And so... The myth of indigenous inferiority and the myth of non-indigenous superiority uh, were taught in our public schools. And so I always say, don't be surprised at your inherent bias and your, your difficulty in believing that this in fact occurred or your difficulty in believing that this is how it's manifesting itself today or your belief that, us oh, just get over it, it's easy uh, because it's not. Uh, it's no, no more easier for Indigenous people to get over that treatment in our classroom than it is for you to get past the fact that you are not superior, that your ancestors did not come from a superior existence. In fact, if you look closely at European societies at the time of uh, discovery in 1492 and 1491 here in North America, you will see that most of European nations um, had an incredibly um, <laughs> difficult uh, society to just to live in. And uh, so uh, there was nothing, nothing that uh, can't be dealt with today, but we have to recognize that and we have to make a part of our change as we go forward. Mm -hmm. Well, to end on that part of our change going forward, some of the hardest conversations, uh, the most difficult things to, to hear uh, at commission hearings are also some of the most important things to hear and most important conversations to have. You ended your statement following the uh, apology from Pope Francis with this statement, quote, ask yourself, what are you doing to support the work of reconciliation? End quote. I love that call to action, Senator. That's uh, the active and good citizenship that I think we should be promoting. Um, 
I've always said we should strive to be good citizens, to serve, to volunteer, to give to charity. And I think reconciliation and to play a part in reconciliation is part of making Canada reach the potential we would like to think it has. For a non-Indigenous young person or middle-aged person like me in rural Canada, big city, small town, that doesn't have a connection to a reserve, doesn't have any Indigenous ancestry, um, what do you recommend for them to support the work of reconciliation in their own lives and community? Well, uh, I think the most important thing is to inform yourself, uh, to be sure you understand uh, what this history is about. Uh, people uh, have a, a relatively superficial appreciation of the uh, detail of the past, and that's fine. It's not necessary to read the 6,000-page 6, report of the TRC, uh, nor necessarily do you have to read the you know, the 390-some page uh, summary report. Um, but you do need to look uh, kind of just around you, like in the area where you live. How has residential schools affected the area in which you live? Ask yourself that question and then do a little exploration and, and see if you can find out from other people or even from local historical societies or from the school system or just from reading books, um, what is the nature of that? And then understand as well that there are things that you can do at a very personal level. You know, the, the, the many people think that reconciliation is a role for government. Uh, many people think that reconciliation is something that Indigenous people have to do. And in that regard, sometimes they think that if uh, Indigenous people would just assimilate faster, then this would all go away. But that's not going to happen. Indigenous people are rediscovering their culture, their language, and their sovereignty. And so the potential for conflict is probably growing uh, without there being a better and fuller understanding of exactly how this all came about. And so what I say to people is inform yourself and, uh, and talk about this with people who are close to you, people who are around you. I said, if you have a chance, talk to it with your kids because they're going to schools and they're learning about this in schools and they'd be probably glad to inform you because they think you're probably a dumb guy anyway. So they'll be glad to tell you more information. So just tell them, what, did, what, do you, what can you tell me about what, uh, you know, where's the closest residential school to our house or, you know, uh, somebody that uh, they, a friend that they, they made in, in school who's an indigenous kid, uh, so if they can tell you anything about that kid a little bit more than what, you know, the, the fact that he's indigenous, what, what do they know? And, uh, and then maybe you can talk to them about, you know, what happened to the indigenous people in the community that you, you uh, grew up in. Um, you know, I tell people that even, uh, I, was, I was at an event one time where uh, a group of uh, elderly ladies, uh, we called them the tea grannies because they told us what they did was they formed uh, a, a tea group. They used to get together anyway and just drink tea on 
three or four of them, but they formed a group and started inviting other grandmothers that they knew from their church and from their community activities, inviting them together. And what they did was they read the TRC report uh, to each other out loud. And, uh, and then they talked about what they read. And then they would call up an MLA or an MP or somebody and say, can you come and talk to our group about this thing? And, uh, and so uh, they said uh, that this was something that really benefited them. And then they would invite their grandchildren and their children to sit in and listen to their talks. And, and so they were a pretty activist little group of grandmothers. And, and I said, I, I really admired what they did because they saw the importance of informing people and, and, and that's really what it's all about. Uh, so yeah. we can we can do that, you know? And, and what I said to people is that at a personal level, reconciliation really turns on this one this one statement, and that is, I want to be your friend, and I want you to be mine. And if we are friends together, then whenever you are in trouble, I can help you. And whenever I am in trouble, you can help me. And that's what reconciliation is all about. Wow, what a wonderful way to end it, Marie. Um, um, I'm proud to call you a friend, and I hope uh, hope it's reciprocal. And challenging people to inform themselves and talk about this is exactly what we did today here on the Blue Skies Political Podcast. Talk about the process of reconciliation. Talk about your work as the, the lead and chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And talking about this with millions of people today, because at the beginning, Murray, you said that millions of people listen to my Blue Skies podcast. I think that was the number yes. you used, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, maybe after having such a uh, an important citizen on this podcast to talk about an important subject, maybe my listeners will will go up into the thousands. I think it's more like the hundreds now, but I'm striving for the millions, Murray. And I just want to thank you for for being part of this conversation today, but more importantly, for uh, your life of leadership, uh, showing the path of reconciliation to to Canadians and. Everyone has a role to play, not just politicians, whether it's the tea grannies or young kids like the kids in, in my son and daughter's classes who now are armed with that information about our past. Uh, thank you for continuing these conversations for our country. And thank you for giving me this opportunity to be part on uh, part of your million person podcast. Uh, uh, and I think that uh, as well, you know, these kinds of conversations need to occur regularly because uh, it, we need to not only think and talk about understanding this, uh, but the more that we do that, um, the more comfortable we will feel about where we're going and what we're doing. And that's really what's important is that we are bringing about change. And sometimes people are not comfortable with change. And yet, change is always occurring and we need to feel comfortable with the change that is occurring and this is part of that so thank you for helping uh, me participate in this process of change for a million and numbers of other people because <laughs> this is going to be uh, uh, an important moment and i do consider you a very good friend 
uh, we started talking uh, a long time ago. I enjoyed our conversations and I uh, will continue to enjoy them, I'm sure. And uh, we will have uh, other opportunities, I'm sure, as well to participate in conversations like this. I, I look forward to that. I've always learned a lot, as I have today. And I look forward to seeing you in person soon in this uh, new post-Zoom world in, uh, environment, perhaps in a city that we both like uh, of Kingston. And thank you for your work with, with Queen's. So ladies and gentlemen, I've been very fortunate to be joined today by the Honorable Murray Sinclair, a great Canadian, someone really lighting the path of reconciliation for our country, a path that we all have a role to walk as part of this great country for Canada to really live up to our potential is to make sure that we learn and inform ourselves about the past and work to reconcile, work to fix, and to provide the same opportunities that were deprived for generations for our neighbors, for people in our community and in our country. That's the Canadian experience we're striving for. That's the type of optimism the Blue Skies Political Podcast strives for. I've used the aviation acronym before, CAVU, Ceiling and Visibility Unlimited, but only if we commit to this great country. So thank you for tuning in to the Blue Skies Political Podcast. We'll see you again soon.